big news that you have received that has changed your life? I'll give you an example. For me, I was leading a mission trip to Dubai. I was brand new in ministry. I was just cutting my teeth. Uh, we had no kids at the time. It was just Sarah and I. <coughs> Excuse me. This trip was supposed to only take 10 days. Uh, on our, it was with a bunch of teenagers. And so we've done the 10 days. Everyone's packing up. We're ready to get home. And then we get the news literally as we're about to walk out of the door. Physically, we're walking out of the door and we get a text on our little burner phone. Hey, or whoever it was, it wasn't Southwest, uh, but whoever it was just canceled your flight. And not only that, that was bad enough news. Not only that, but you've got to stay here four more days because the next time we can get you a flight out of here back to Lakeland is four days from now. Those were a miserable four days. The, you know, dealing with teenagers who were ready to go home and then psyching them out and realizing, no, we've got to spend four more days serving the Lord. <laughs> they didn't like that. We get home at the end of that. I am totally gassed, as you can imagine. Sarah picks me up from the airport. We get back to our little condo with green carpet in the bathroom. And we sit down on the couch. It feels like it's 2.30 in the morning because of the jet lag. And then she hands me a card. And I thought, it's not my birthday. It's not Father's Day, but that would make sense because I'm not even a dad. She gives me this card, and I open it, and it says, congratulations, I'm pregnant. And that moment, everything changed. <laughs> uh, we are entering a, a series over, and we started it last week, and we'll be going for the next nine weeks called The Gospel Changes Everything. The word gospel gets thrown around a lot, and it probably gets thrown around too much as just sort of an adjective to put in front of anything, and then it sort of becomes, you know, holy or something. But the, the word gospel has very deep roots. It has roots that go all the way back to the times of the Old Testament in in times of battle, when a soldier would be sent off to war, and then they would come running back into town and announce victory, that act was known, or that news that was coming back into town of victory was known as gospel. The word literally means, in Greek, euangelion. You, like euphoria, good feeling, euangelion, angel, messenger. So this is good news in a very literal sense. So to say that the gospel changes everything is to say that there is some news out there that when it's announced will make you drop everything and will change every aspect of your life. And so every, every Sunday we're going to be sitting on a, a different aspect of how good news changes your life. And this is not just any kind of good news. The, the freight of that word in the Old Testament gets brought into the New Testament and given all of this new category, all of this new order that is gospel does not just mean some sort of good news. It particularly has to do with the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming of Jesus. It is the gospel of the kingdom come. And so that is what we're going, that's what changes everything. If Jesus really was who he was, if he really did what he said, then that is what changes our entire life.
And so we had our first announcer last week, and so for our second gospel announcement and how it is good news, uh, I forget who it is that's coming up. Anselmo, that's right. Caitlin Anselmo, if you will come on up and read for us. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. It's not going to work. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. We pray that it would not return void in Christ. The good news for this morning uh, is you're adopted. That may be shocking news, especially to you on on Father's Day. Uh, But the passage goes on to say, as many as have trusted that God sent forth his son to redeem them. That redemption is not the end game. Adoption, the move of slavery to sonship, is the full package. And adoption means something a little bit different to us. It still carries a lot of the same weight, but in the ancient world, adoption was ramped up even more than it is now. And so when Paul uses this image of adoption, he's using something that that meant a great deal more even than it does in this day in that. Because to be adopted in that day, you could even be adopted as an older person as a way for a father to hand over his inheritance to someone of his choosing. And so this idea of adoption, you know, I was, I would have been Jeremy, son of Sidney. He was a minstrel, and so I will be a minstrel, and I will have minstrels after me. Minstrel's a musician, just in case you didn't know, going on with the analogy. Uh, Right? My dad was a musician. I'm a musician. I'm going to raise musicians. My dad was a blacksmith. I'm a blacksmith. I'm going to raise blacksmiths. This is every part of one's identity and vocation, calling, orientation, and entire life outlook is all built into who you were and who your dad was. And so in the very same way, for Paul to use this image of adoption means a great deal to your orientation for all of life. Your understanding of your vocation, your understanding of your, the reality of how you relate to God and how you relate to the world around you. Now, particularly, the passage gives us two reasons why this is good news for our identity, why sonship is good news for our identity. If you are Dave, son of God, if you are Allison, daughter of God, why does that change anything for you? The passage gives us two things. It means you're not a slave, for one, and slaves are owned. But it means, secondly, that you are a child, and a child is loved and cherished. No longer a slave, but a son. 
So verse 3, which happens just before this, and verse 9, if you were to read the entire passage instead of just the little snippet that we did, talks about the elementary principles of the world is what slavery means to fill out this idea is the elementary principles of the world is what we are kind of bound to. There's a little footnote under both of those verses that says another way to, to, um, to say that is not only elementary principles, but elementary spirits. And so the idea here is that we are born into this world and bound to something that we can't naturally get ourselves a part of. Jesus then ramps this up in John 8, 44, and goes on to say, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do what your father desires. Naturally, we are born into this world enslaved, enslaved not only to the elemental, elementary principles of this world, meaning just sort of, you know, it's about image, it's about money, it's about whatever, it's about fame, it's about, you know, working hard till you make it. But it's also saying that there is a, there is a demonic nature that we are stuck to and cannot get a part of. There is something about our heart that is wayward and lost, and we cannot find our way back home. So one of the best images that I have found, uh, and funny enough, it's one of my daughter's favorite movies, is the movie Tangled. You've seen the movie Tangled? It, it's a riff on Rapunzel. And the, the whole premise of the movie is there's this old hag named Gothel. And she sneaks in to uh, the daughter of King Corona and steals her when she's an infant out of her crib because she has this magical hair. And she goes and, and hi- whisks her away, hides her in this tower out in the middle of the woods, and then raises her as her mother. Raises her to be her own. Raises her as one, and she tells her these stories of the big, scary world out there. And no, you can never leave this tower. I am your safety. I am your reality. Never leave. All out there is scary and bad and awful. And the idea that we are born into this world enslaved to the elementary spirits of it is we are born with a deadbeat dad. We are born into a world that lies to us consistently. We hear those lies and believe them internally, and we see those lies on billboards all over the cities that we're born into. We are born into a a world that we have to make it on our own, that if it's to be, it's up to me. This whole thing is just me against the world. I'm alone. I have nobody who cares for me, and so I've got to do my best. That's what we are born into this world believing. And, and we get spun this whole web of lies about that ultimately is total untruth. We have the sneaking suspicion that this world isn't all there's for, there is, that we're meant for more but we can never quite find what that is in and of ourselves. We're blind to the kingdom that we were made for. And in a sense, we're unaware of our captivity. But thankfully, in one sense, uh, there's a lot that we could say in, as we look at our culture around us, that may cause us to, you know, kind of just feel like, man, just get me away from it. But one of the things that I'm very thankful for about our culture right now is we're living in line with the reality that we actually believe. 
our theology or lack thereof is becoming much more apparent in the ways that our culture lives. What you believe or don't believe is beginning to be lived out on the world stage as opposed to just sort of in this privatized way inside your own home. And in one sense, that is a gift to the Christian community to be able to engage with that where you're not having to draw out what somebody believes, but they are living it out in front of everyone. So Kristen Stewart, the Twilight star, uh, was recently quoted as saying this. The way that I feel, sort of her reality, is through really visceral desire. And that's the only reason we're alive. And then she goes on to say, we are pleasure sacks. Now, I'm sorry, that's a really weird image. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of, it has this visceral quality to it that, wow, this is really what she believes. Her identity is based on, I am what pleases me. There's nothing else in this world, and so that must be reality. Maybe Freud wasn't far off. What is my identity? What makes me me? Is it pleasure? Is it my successes? Is it my smarts? Is it that I can get laughs from people? Is it that I I can maintain a good image? Is it that I'm healthy? Is it that I look good? We are all on the hunt for identity. And this is not just a sort of a non-Christian thing. Everybody in this room, Christian or not, you are on a hunt for your identity. We are constantly forming our identity and cobbling together this vision of what I want others to see when they see me. That's what makes me, me. And so the question this morning to you is, what is that? What are you currently building your identity on? Again, everybody does this in some kind of unhealthy way. In high school, I was plagued by being popular. That sounded funny because it sounded like I was popular and was played. It was actually the opposite. I was not popular, but I wanted to be. Until about junior year, and then I, I tasted a little bit of popularity. I, I got in with a friend group that was a little bit up the food chain, more than I was, and I started to taste the reality of that, and it tasted so good. And my identity... I used to, you know, I would be able to walk in, you know, confident because my locker was right next to my friend's locker, right next to my other friend's locker, and we'd all walk in like this awesome posse (laughs) in slow motion. But internally, that's right, but internally, I was more insecure than when I wasn't popular. The closer I got to it, the further it moved away from me. And that's the issue with anything that we build our identity on that is not Jesus, is it's a moving target. The closer you get to money, the more you want. The closer you get to pleasure, the more you need. The closer you get to health or good looks, more, more, more. Or what about when it fails? Some of you have have heard my story. The last thing I did before coming here was close a church. I had a big fat F right on my forehead. My identity was challenged. What is it that you feel slipping through your fingers right now? Your identity feels like it's this this slime that you can't quite hold in your hand. What is that for you? 
Whatever that is, there's an, there's an opportunity, an invitation of Jesus right now to lay that thing down, to let it be what it is, but to lay it down. And instead, to pick up this vision, not of slavery to that anymore, but of sonship. Slaves have to work for their identity. Sons, daughters, just given to you. You're just born into it. You just wake up in this household and it just, everything is already yours. And so verse four goes on to say, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Salvation, Jesus died for my sins, that gets a lot of press in church. And praise the Lord, it should. But do you know that there is, there is a whole domino effect because of the work of Jesus that happens in the life of one who has trusted in him? The first domino to fall, yes, is God before the foundation of the world beginning a plan that ultimately culminated in Jesus who would die and rise again so that others can be invited into that death and into that resurrection. But that's just the beginning. Then what opens up to us is this whole new world, this whole new reality. Because let's just, we could, you know, take this thought experiment out to its lengths. God could have just pardoned us and, you know, Jesus died for your sins, wiped the slate clean, you're good, have a nice life, see you in heaven. But that was only the beginning of what he came to do. Because he not only came to pardon, he came to renew and remake and give a new last name even. Because don't get too caught up, especially women in the room, don't get too caught up on the, the masculine usage of son there. That has nothing to do with gender. It has nothing to do with in some way that sons are better than daughters or that God favors the son more than the daughter of his. What it's going to say is there's a very, uh, very purposeful wordplay that's happening. Do you notice because it says, God sent forth his son for adoption as sons. What does that mean? That Paul is identifying us with Jesus, male or female. Our identity is Jesus. It has nothing to do with his masculinity or his femininity, femininity, but it has everything to do with who he was in relationship with his father. And who was he in relationship to his father? He was a son who lived perfectly every day of his life. Consider, as I read these out, consider this your new reality. Lived perfectly every day of his life a son who gave up his right as the only son of God to welcome us in by his death. A son whose father, listen, was totally pleased. A son who had all resources and all affection of his father available at all times. That can be your identity. That can be your reality. And it's not even that it can be, it's that it is. As many as who have trusted in Christ today, that is 
your reality. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have salvation without adoption. Because that's Jesus' identity, because that's who he is, that's who I am. I'm a child. And so to close, I want to focus on two images that Paul gives. He, he talks first about this Abba image. And that's more the internal subjective image. And then he goes on at the very end of the passage and talks about you're an heir. H-E-I-R, heir of his, of the kingdom. So we're going to close with those two images. The Spirit gives us now new words to cry out to God, Abba, Father. What does that mean? Uh, I think one of the best illustrations I've ever found of this is Russell Moore, uh, who is a, a Christian leader and pastor. Uh, he wrote a book a number of years ago called Adopted for Life. And it's a reflection on his adoption journey and how it taught him about the adoption of God. And this is what he says. He says, the creepiest sound I ever heard was nothing at all. I was walking into a Russian orphanage and I turned to my wife and said, why is it so quiet in here? And then as they listened a little bit closer, they heard the rocking back and forth of cribs knocking against the wall. And they weren't knocking because someone was rocking them. They were knocking because the child themselves was rocking. He goes on to say, these children did not cry. Because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. He goes on to say, as, as they made multiple visits, Typically, you know, especially international adoption is a, a back and forth process over a number of months. As they, they went one final time, they had to leave. They had built a relationship with these two boys who had eventually become theirs. And as they walked out of the room to go back to America to finalize the paperwork before they could come back and fully take them back home with them, he said something different happened. Every time before then, when we had left, there was just quiet. And in that moment, as we walked out the door, little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On a primal level, he knew that he had a father and a mother now. Abba, Father, is the cry of the renewed spirit cry of one who God is wooing to himself. It is the cry of one who has the Holy Spirit, a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you, is that you're responding to him, that you're responding to his love, that you're responding to his grace, that you're responding to his still, small voice beckoning you to come, child. He said, the hairs on my arms stood up because I'd never understood Abba before like this. Our whole lives have been silent before God. 
before the Holy Spirit has worked in us, our whole life is silent towards him, and we believe we are alone. But what would it look like for more and more trusting in the Holy Spirit, trusting by faith that this is actually your story, not just a story that happened a long time ago, that you, you begin to feel welling up inside of you this desire to cry out to God. Not to come to Him in sort of pompous voice where you have to posture yourself to make Him pleased, but as one who is already pleased and just invite you to be you with Him. We're going to default back and forth. We're going to default every morning when we wake up back to our slavery, back to our orphanhood but to continue to be invited by the Spirit to live more and more into our sonship and into the second category as we close, into your inheritance. He says, you are not only crying out Abba Father inside of you, but there is a new objective reality outside of you. You are an heir. As you cry out to him in dependence, he quiets you with his love. He rejoices over you with singing, according to Zephaniah 3. And then, in the same way that I'm a blacksmith because my dad was a blacksmith and my kids will be blacksmiths because I'm one, you begin to look more and more at your father and see, what is he doing? I want to do that. I want to be like him when I grow up. And if his mission is to bring heaven to earth, then I want to be a part of that. If his mission is setting up an embassy that will grow and grow and grow like Dave said last week and fill the earth like the waters cover the sea with the glory of the Lord, I want to be a part of that. That's what my dad's doing. That's what my life's about. He wants me to be an ambassador. I'm there because I'm not a hired hand. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm dearly loved and cared for. Everything I need is yes and amen in him. And so I can, with full abandon, run after his kingdom and trust that everything will be added to me. Let's pray. Father, we can't quite get our minds around what it means to call you Father. What a deep and rich truth that we still have such a difficult time believing. Many of us this morning, many of us even in this room right now, have defaulted again to slavery. Uh, we've defaulted again to believing that we're alone. We've defaulted to believing that nobody cares. We've defaulted to believe that we are what we do. We've defaulted to believe that the only hope we have is to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make what we want out of this world. Those are lies. Holy Spirit, help us to see the lies and instead of living into them, repent our way out of them. Gather us up again into your loving arms. Care for us now, even as we sing. We pray in Christ.